Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's 
Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray now in the silence of this place that you would speak to us in a way that our lives would be transformed. We come to this very moment from different places in our spiritual journey, some of us believing these things, trusting, wondering what you might be saying or doing in our lives and in our world. Others of us skeptical, cynical, doubting, wondering if we could actually believe these things. Some of us remembering a time where you seemed so close and now you seem a million miles away and we're wondering what happened to you. Where did we go wrong? We come to this moment with hope for the future and with despair. Feeling connected in our relationships and feeling alone and isolated. Come to this moment with optimism and joy and depression and anger and addiction. But however we find ourselves right now, help us to see we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is created in your image and likeness, beautiful, worthy of honor and dignity. And at the same time, each of us is fractured, is broken. We've wandered. And you see us, and your response to all of that is to not say, yuck, and run away, but rather to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would convince us of that great love and activate us for reflecting that love into this world. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we just passed... uh, Uh, spring break here, and I was reflecting on the worst spring break I've ever planned, which was in, just across the border in Yuma, Arizona. We had our old RV, if you've ever seen it, we call it the Millennium Falcon. It's 25 years old. Everything works on it, but it is the ugliest RV when you pull in to the uh, RV park. And so we had planned this RV excursion with our kids to Yuma, Arizona. There were water slides There were boat rentals. We were going to rent a boat and go down the Colorado River, rent some ATVs, go on some water slides. And we check in and we say, hey, where do we rent boats? And they go, oh, the boat rentals aren't available for the whole week. Okay. But how about the dune buggies? Where can we rent those? Sorry, the dune buggies aren't available this week either. And then we look at this particular portion of the Colorado River, and it was just moss-infested nastiness that you would never want to swim in. I swim in La Jolla Cove where the sea lions outnumber the swimmers. Trust me, it's worse than that. And so we're on our way home after all of this, and there was a mechanical breakdown on the RV. I mean, we had it all. We're coming back, and I'm like, I just need to save the day here somehow. So I'm I'm on Google Maps just looking for a great RV resort somewhere between Yuma and San Diego, and I find one that has a swimming pool with a hot tub and ATV rentals and all that, and I'm calling ahead, and I'm I'm reserved. We're good. And I'm confirming two, it's Florence and me, three boys, and and the woman goes, okay, well, you need to come to the orientation because you're new to this. And I said, I'm not new to this. I've been doing this for a long time. She said, yeah, yeah, but since you have kids and you're new to this, you need to come to the orientation. And I'm just like, you're completely confusing me right now. Well, when we pulled in, I noticed first off that the person who admitted us was not wearing any clothes. (laughs) She was not proclaiming that I'm new to this. She was saying we had to go to an orientation because they are nudists. 
It was a nudist colony RV park. Needless to say, my kids got an important uh, pre-health education that they would later augment in, in PE class. And we did not stay at the nudist RV park. But it made for a great story. That was the worst vacation I've ever planned. It was just swing and a miss, and then I'll try again, and I miss there, and I'll try again, and I miss. It was, I, I came up with zeros for the most part on that one. Man, how I wish I could have a do-over on that vacation. Failure. Ab- abject failure. Now, that's a light picture of failure, but I really do wish I had a do-over because I'll never get those days back and I still get made fun of by my family members. But what do you do with actual, like, deeper failure in your life? I mean, the stuff that really counts deeply, where you failed at your job and now you're reaping the whirlwind, where you let somebody down and you know you did and so do they, and it's causing relational breakdown, where you've made decisions in your life and you're wondering how you're ever going to get out from underneath them, wishing you could hit the do-over button, but I'm sorry, there is no do-over button. How do you deal with failure in parenting your kids? Of continuing to hope for change in your life that you just don't see and doesn't seem to be coming fast enough? What do you do with that voice inside that says, you have failed? And beyond that, not only you have failed, you are a failure. Because that voice is driving your life. That voice is driving my life. The question is, what do you do with it? And here is Jesus in one of the first meetings with his friends after his death and resurrection where they have failed him. This is a group of people who at their best had scattered on the day he was crucified. His closest friends. This is Peter who at his worst denied even knowing Jesus three times on the day of Jesus' greatest need. They failed him. Not only that, but these are people who, before they were following Jesus, were fishermen. They should be professionals. They should be good at this. They can't even catch fish, so they're not even good at their jobs anymore. Relationally, they've broken down. Ethically, in terms of don't leave your friends behind, they've failed. Vocationally, they're career-wise. It's not successful, and Jesus moves toward them not only moves toward them, moves toward them, and what does he do? He makes breakfast for them. Did you see that? In Jesus, you have God who makes breakfast for failures. God who comes to you in your weakness, where you've dropped the ball and says, let me feed you and nourish you. Beyond that, let me show you hospitality and welcome. And so let's look at this today as we consider Jesus' community Jesus' compassion, and Jesus' commission. And before we do, I want to just highlight, we we kind of hit this from a different angle each week, that Christianity does not claim Jesus' resurrection as some sort of poetic or symbolic vision of, you know, new life comes out of death, there's always spring after the winter, the flowers always bloom after the snow, and Jesus' resurrection is just a way of saying that his goodness goes on in the hearts of all of us. Christianity does not make that claim. The Gospel of John is claiming that these things actually happened. Now, it's up to you and me to do the hard work and figure out if it's true or not, But just receiving it as some sort of myth or symbolism is not an offer that the Gospels make. 
well-known author, award-winning author, Anne Rice, who most famously wrote um, Interviews with a Vampire, became a Christian years ago after reading through N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's about an 850-page treatise on the resurrection. I'm rereading it right now during the season of resurrection, so pray for your pastor, heavy reading. But she got through it, and she had a rational connection with the resurrection. And part of it was realizing the gospels claim that these things actually happened. So for example, the gospel of John that we just read doesn't speak to you in the language of mythology, like the Odyssey or the Iliad or choose your Greek, uh, your, you know, your Greek poison of choice. Myths begin like Star Wars. In a land far away, in a time long ago, these things happened. But this is written in the language of reportage, with details. I mean, John names names. You want to know who was there? Simon, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, which we know were James and John, and two others of his disciples. You want to know where they were? They were at the Sea of Tiberias. He's naming names. He's giving locations. He's giving details like when Peter saw that it was Jesus, he put on clothes and got into the water. Why would you include a detail like that? That's a weird detail to include. The only reason you would include that detail is because that is the way things happened. He says they were 100 yards from shore. There were 153 fish. Friends, 153 is not a symbolic number anywhere in Scripture. Three is, seven is, 40 is. 153 fish. Why did he say that? Because someone counted the fish, and there were 153 of them. So the first thing is, John claims these things happened. Now, why did John include this story? He tells us his reason for including the stories he includes, and he says, Jesus did many other things that are not included in this book, but I have included these stories so that you may know the truth of Jesus Christ and come to believe that he is the Son of God. So John includes the facts, the details, the eyewitness accounts, so that you and I, 2,000 years later, can trust Jesus' compassion, Jesus' commission, Jesus' resurrection life, that you can actually build your life on it. So let's look at this community. First, they were diverse. So we talk about Renew Church being a church of people of all different backgrounds coming together around Jesus. That's not something we made up. That's something that happens when you get around the resurrected Christ. John, the gospel, the gospel writer, names these groups together that are so different from each other bound by an experience that went beyond normal social rules for relationships. So for example, you have Thomas there, who we learned last week was rather slow to believe these things, doubting Thomas. You can listen to that sermon from last week on the podcast. Thomas is slow to believe. You have Nathaniel there. Nathaniel was quick to believe. He believed Jesus when he was still under the fig tree in the beginning of the Gospels. So you have Thomas, who we would say is substitious, and Nathaniel, who is superstitious. Okay? You have Peter, who we learn is this type A, go for it, calloused hands, fisherman, tough guy. And then you have John, who's more affectionate, more emotional. What do those two talk about? You have Matthew, who's a tax collector, which means he was a Jewish man who sold out the Jews on behalf of the Roman occupying government. And then you have Simon the Zealot, 
who would be a Jewish man that would engage in violence against the Roman government. These two would be sworn enemies, and they're coming together around Jesus. A mark of the Christian community is people who would never belong together, gather together around Jesus for the sake of those who don't belong. People who would never belong together, gathering together around Jesus for the sake of those who don't belong. Jesus can and will bring people together across racial divides, temperamental divides, socioeconomic divides, political divides, ethnic divides, and every possible divide. Jesus can bring people together who would otherwise despise each other. Who do you despise right now? It's okay, you can admit it. Jesus brings them and you together. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a second. It is a process, but it is a vision and a mission of the gospel. Jesus can bring them together in unity that actually creates wisdom. And so we have people in this church, some who have multiple advanced degrees, some of them who don't have a high school education. Some of us who have more financial resources than we know what to do with. Some of us who don't know how we're going to pay the grocery bills. Some of us who vote one way and maybe even have a political blog on that particular topic. Someone who votes the exact opposite way and has an opposing viewpoint blog on that topic. People who the watching world says, we know how these groups should interact. It's easy. You scapegoat the other group, get together with people just like you, and then throw stones at them online. That's what you do. And we say, no, 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 no. The resurrection creates an entirely new community, a new city in the midst of the old city. The old city that's marked by scapegoating and alienation and we're right and they're wrong and culture wars instead is marked in here by the resurrection of Jesus that brings all people together. And when the watching world sees that, they go, what's going on with that group of people? on 30th Street. You actually have something to offer the watching world. Jesus creates an entirely new community. So let's just apply that real quickly. On one hand, it means that if you're surrounding yourself with people just like yourself, who make the same amount of money that you do, who like the same things that you do, who vote the same way that you do, who have the same amount of education as you do, you're probably missing out. In fact, you're probably missing out on a mark of the resurrection life. Now, it could just be a sign that you've lulled yourself into sleep, getting comfortable. I don't blame you for that. I like to be comfortable too. But it's there that you will become complacent and stagnate. You know what else it means? I love that this church welcomes people all the time that say, look, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or I'm a Christian, but I'm not a part of a church. I get that. I hear you. You are always, always welcome here. And I want this to be a place where you are honored, where you know that you're heard and you're seen, but I also want to challenge that. Because if you, let's say you're a Christian and your vision of following Jesus doesn't include a community. And so your biblical teaching comes through your favorite podcast. Your worship music comes through your favorite playlist on Spotify. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, okay? I can guarantee you though that you are experiencing Jesus in a way that Jesus would not have recognized. 
Because ever since the resurrection, communities of people have been gathering together to experience the resurrected Christ in our differences. What I'm saying is you're missing out, and I want you to have all of it. That's why we always say, if your choice is between not coming to Renew Church and joining online, please join online. But if your choice is between being online and being in person, please come in person. Because we want to be flesh and blood relationally together for our good and the good of this world. And just want to note again about this community. So they're diverse, but they're also just having a difficult day. That's putting it lightly. These people have abandoned Jesus, are despondent. They've gone back to their day jobs, but now they're not even good at their day jobs. They've got nothing. And Jesus meets them in the midst of their failure, in the midst of their spiritual sadness, their emotional emptiness, the relational fracturedness. What's the part of your life right now that feels like the light is turned down so low you can't see? Or it's, the fire has become so cold you wonder if it could ever get stoked again into a flame? What's the part of your life that feels like failure? I want you to see Jesus moving toward you and feeding you. But in this case, he doesn't feed you fish on the beach. He brings you to this table where he gives you himself. This table is breakfast for failures. Every Sunday as he gives us himself, feast on him. Remember that he'll never leave you or forsake you. Which brings us to Jesus' compassion. You see, this account in John 21 is an echo, a companion piece to something that happened earlier in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. See, in this account, Peter has just denied knowing Jesus three times. And now Peter's out fishing with his buddies. They get this miraculous catch of fish because a stranger gave them some really good advice from the beach. He realizes it's Jesus, and he can't get to him fast enough. I think the putting on clothes part to jump in the water, I think that's John just being real and authentically stating this guy wasn't in his right mind. He was beside himself. He was ecstatic because Jesus was on the shore. But think about that. What must Peter have been thinking in that moment? The last time I saw him, he was being nailed to a cross and I was denying that I knew him. I failed, he's gotta be mad. But that's not what Peter experienced. He sees Jesus and he can't get close enough to him. Now this is the opposite of what happened in Luke chapter five. In Luke chapter five, when Peter first meets Jesus, Jesus says, go put the nets out on that side of the boat. There's a miraculous catch of fish. Peter realizes he's in the presence of greatness. And in that moment, he says, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. So when Peter didn't know Jesus, and he realizes he's in the presence of the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, when he didn't know him, in the midst of his failure, he said, get away from me. But now that he's experienced Jesus for three years, lived with him, walked with him, listened to him, got to know the character of Jesus, in his failure, he can't get close enough to him fast enough. What do you think changed? He experienced Jesus' grace. Jesus is a savior that you can fail in front of. And when you realize you've failed, you don't need to get as far away from him as possible. You can get as close to him 
as possible. He realized he was not only in the presence of greatness, but in the presence of grace. Not only in the presence of power, resurrection power over death, but the presence of love. Friends, you will never run to Jesus with your failure until you will see that he is not only powerful, but he's good. But as soon as you see that, why would you wait another minute? Run to him. Which means then that to be a Christian is, it means not that you never fail. Uh, no. Someone right now is going, I know Christians. <laughs> I'm sure that's not what it means. <laughs> to be a Christian does not mean that by the, when, when you become a Christian, your life just goes up and up and up, and you can chart it on a graph, and it's upward and to the right like we want the economy to be, and you go from victory to victory and never another worry. No. To be a Christian means to be a beloved failure. It means life is two steps forward and one step back, and you constantly have that voice. Instead of the voice that says you are a failure, that voice that says I will never leave you or forsake you. Instead of that fear of, if they really knew, they would leave me. Instead, there's that joy of Jesus making breakfast for you, of moving toward you. You know what it also means? It means you can become that kind of approachable person. So you have a savior that's okay to fail in front of, and you become the most safe person with other people's failures around you. You know this is happening when someone in your office comes up to you and says, I really blew it and no one knows yet. What do you think I should do? You know this is happening when someone in your apartment building or on your block comes to you and says, things are not going well for me and nobody knows it, but I trust you. Can you listen to me? What does it look like for you to be the most approachable person in your family? Jesus' compassion goes toward you and then sends you out. And finally, let's just briefly touch on Jesus' commissioning for Peter. You know, you have that experience. There's some way that our olfactory nerve is so hardwired to our brain, our sense of smell can instantly bring up memories. You ever go buy somebody their cologne or their perfume, or you have, you know, for me, actually, there's a weird one. I've shared this with people, and, and some people have the experience, too. But when I go to a lake, and there's a boat, and they start it up, and you can smell that boat fuel on the water, it takes me back to summers in Illinois as a kid on my uncle's boat. Or a good bonfire. You could just be driving by the beach and you smell a bonfire and it takes you back to the middle of the summer. Doesn't matter when it is. That sense of smell can bring you right back. I wonder if that's happening for Peter in this story because John mentions they're standing around a charcoal fire. Jesus has just made breakfast on a charcoal fire. And the last time Peter has been around a charcoal fire was three days earlier at the charcoal fire when he was asked, do you know Jesus? And he said, I do not know the man. And not only would that scent, that aroma be bringing back these memories of betrayal, but what's Jesus doing? Simon Peter, do you love me? feed my lamb. Simon Peter, do you love me? Simon Peter, do you love me? And says he felt bad because Jesus asked him three times. Wouldn't you feel bad if someone who is so close to you says, do you love me? You say, I do. But do you love me? I, I do. But do you love me? What's Jesus doing? Each of those questions of do you love me echoing one of the betrayals of Simon Peter and now we say ooh he's really twisting the knife 
and he is, but it's not the knife of a cutthroat. It's the scalpel of a surgeon. And Jesus is the good physician, reinstating Peter, giving him one opportunity to declare his love for every time before that he devoured it, disavowed it. Healing Peter from the inside out, reinstating his connection, and then recommissioning him out into the world. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus in the Gospel of John is known as the Good Shepherd. And now he's saying to Peter and to you and me, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now, here's the thing about feeding and tending sheep and lambs. First of all, those are difficult animals. I don't know if you ever hung out with a sheep or a lamb like at the petting zoo at the San Diego Zoo. They're dumb animals. They get lost easily. They will eat paper if you leave it in your pocket at the zoo. They'll eat anything. They'll get wandering. They'll, they'll fight each other. Oh, it's tough to be a sheep. That's, what, that's, what, that's one of the analogies for us. We're like sheep. But that's also an analogy for the people around you, difficult people. Tend them, feed them, love them. Sheep give you almost nothing in return. It's not like feed my puppies or my dog. Like a dog is so happy and wags its tail and gives you affection and is loyal. Sheep are none of that. Like they give you nothing. And Jesus is saying, as I love you, go forward and love others this way. What does that look like in your life? And here's, I just, I have so much more to say, but I'm going to leave it at this. Get this. Notice. Jesus invites you into the mission of God to renew all things to feed his sheep, to tend his sheep. Why does he do that? Does he do it because the Lord's work is never done and so if you're a Christian, you need to get busy because it's not happening? Just get busy doing something because God's not doing it? Nope. Look at the analogy. Look at the picture of the breakfast Jesus makes, the fish on the fire, okay? Jesus invites the fishermen to bring the fish they just caught but he doesn't even need it. By the time they arrive, Jesus already has his own fish on the fire. Furthermore, they wouldn't have even had 153 fish if he didn't tell them where to fish. He doesn't need their fish. He doesn't need their help. He could do breakfast all by himself. And still, he invites them to contribute to be a part of it. That's a picture of being a Christian in the kingdom of God. That the mission of renewal is God's. The resurrection power is Jesus's. And he invites you and me to bring all that we have and all that we are and contribute because he delights to be with you. He delights to have you at his table. That should both make you humble and confident at the same time. More humble because you're not the savior and that's okay. More confident because the savior of the world has loved you and invited you in and fed you and invited you to be a part of renewing all things. Friends, as we enter into that, this world will experience breakfast for failures, but so will we, and that's what'll change the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would feed us, nourish us at this table, and in our hearts and our minds and our souls with your good news. So bring us closer together and to you. Help us to come to grips, admit honestly our failures before you, and here, not condemnation, but forgiveness. Help us to admit our hunger to you and receive nourishment. And then send us out as people who feed and forgive like you do. 
We pray these things in your name. Amen.